everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Oh, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. If you brought your Bibles, you can open them up to First Peter. If you didn't bring them, uh, there are Bibles in the back. And I would, I would encourage Bibles for this series. We're going to be looking at the entire book and reading through every single verse. Uh, today, I'm inviting my friend Rusty up to read First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. But it's it's a lot. It's rich. It's deep. And so to honor the words that were written and were put into our Bibles, uh, we believe that, are, that they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're going to follow up the reading with just a few moments of silence. And so you can use that silence to quiet your mind. You can use that silence to reflect or meditate on a small passage that Rusty will read, or you can use that time of silence for prayer. So I'm going to let Rusty read to us from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll be reading the first 12 verses. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him, even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. 
the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this glorious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. So now let's enter into a time of silence. And I would remind you that if you find your mind wandering or distracted, it's simply an invitation to return to Jesus and remind yourself that you are in his presence. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. To give us an experience of your presence. To fill us with your peace and with your power. We pray that the words that we have listened to and will take a closer look at today will inhabit our hearts and our minds, but also be reflected in our life. So Jesus, we are thankful that you have bled for us in order to cleanse us, but also to give us strength and faith and hope. Amen. So there's no way that I can comment on everything that Rusty just read, but we'll see how far we get. I'm guessing it'll be about through verse 4 <laughs> of 12. Um, but I think there's, there's certainly value in reading this letter that was probably circulated throughout many of the churches in the early uh, times of the followers of Jesus, and some of those locations are listed here. But let's just start with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And the theme of today, which was maybe seen by you out on the vinyl as you came in, but permeates through 1 Peter, is the idea of a living hope. 
So it's a living hope in this passage in terms of an adjective, like it's describing the kind of hope we have. Our hope is alive. But throughout much of the rest of the book, we find out what it looks like to actually live a life as if it was a verb that was filled with hope. What does it mean to be living out hope? And so let's read together. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We'll stop right there. This is Peter, the same guy who Allison spoke about last week on Easter, who runs to the tomb. He's not the first one to arrive at the tomb. That is, do you remember? Actually, before John, Mary and the other Mary. So the women are the first to arrive. John beats Peter in a foot race, but Peter is the first one to put his foot in the tomb. He puts his foot in all kinds of places. <laughs> he, he puts his foot uh, out into the water as he's trying to walk out to Jesus onto the Sea of Galilee. But he puts his foot in his mouth more than once. Uh, he is coming against Jesus at one point when Jesus says, I'm going to die. Peter says, no, nah, that can't happen. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Like something's in you that is failing to trust me and my words. And then Peter, of course, on the night, the very night that Jesus is betrayed, Peter denies Jesus and says, I don't even know him. And so this is a very human author who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, who knew Jesus personally. It says here he was an apostle, which like simply means that he was sent out by Jesus. Uh, And so to a degree, every person who is converted to Jesus becomes a disciple of Jesus and is also sent out by Jesus. But in a a very specific sense, Peter was called to follow Jesus 2,000 years ago, was full of flaws, experienced failure, but also... uh, After the loss of hope, a filling of hope, he experienced the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection of Jesus. And though he he was fairly dense, when the Holy Spirit comes, he, he becomes one of the main voices for the early church. First in Jerusalem, and then we'll find out later in Rome, the capital of the empire. And this letter, it seems, was written by him from Rome to encourage and guide followers of Jesus throughout the empire. He says as much in the second half of verse one, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living in foreigners in the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is land that kind of stretches around the Mediterranean Sea into Turkey uh, toward Jordan. And he calls them chosen people who are living as foreigners. Now, one of the places we can get caught up when we hear words like chosen, and the literal Greek here is actually electos, uh, which if you know a little bit of Christian theology, the idea of election or predestination and free will uh, gets written a lot about. But I think if we import our debates about free will into this passage, we forget what Peter is actually trying to do here. 
He's trying to comfort people who are facing suffering and death, trial and struggle. And so I don't know about you, but when I was in middle school, we would break up into teams. We would play basketball. We would play football. We would play tag. Well, that's a bad example. But, but you'd, you'd end up with two captains, right? And each captain was probably the most athletic, uh, the two most athletic people out on the playground at recess. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and do they still do that if you're like middle school? Well, the middle schoolers are mostly and vineyard kids, but I, that, it still happens. I've seen the high schoolers do it. You have two captains, and they pick their teams. And I, though I was tall, was not very athletic, and I was usually one of the bottom two to be picked. And it was an excruciating process. Anybody else, like, bottom of the hill in terms of uh, athletic ability? Yeah, and you're just waiting, and it's excruciating, and you're thinking, oh, maybe I'll get picked next and you don't get picked. The idea here is that God has picked you before you did anything to earn it. Some of you need to hear that today. God has chosen you to be one of his children, not because you're so athletic or because you're so smart or because you're so successful or because you're such a faithful person or a patient person or a loving person. He chooses you because he loves you. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, you might be thinking he's writing to a group of immigrants because here the word gets translated as foreigners. You're foreigners, you're immigrants living far from home in these places. But that doesn't seem to be the main thrust of what uh, Peter here, again, is saying. He is talking to people who have probably lived in these cities most of their lives and will continue to live in these cities. So why does he call them foreigners? Well, another way you could translate this Greek word would be sojourner. You know what a sojourner is? That's maybe a little archaic. It's like someone who's passing through. Or pilgrim. You find this way of addressing people in other letters that are written after the New Testament uh, by people like Polycarp or Ignatius. He says to the sojourners, in Philippi, for instance. Why sojourners? Why pilgrims? Because there is a heavenly city and we are just passing through. We are temporary residents of Malvern. We're temporary residents of Pottstown or Philadelphia or of Pennsylvania. We are temporary residents of this earth. We long for, we wait for a heavenly city. And this is the kind of idea, this is the kind of identity, if it is embraced, that will change your whole life. Most of us, and I will include myself, do not spend our money as if we are pilgrims. As if the thing that we are really living for is a heavenly city and an indestructible hope. We do not spend our time, most of us, as if we are investing in eternity. We spend our time and our money 
most of us, most of the time, for the life here and now. And so I don't want to come down heavy or hard or lay guilt on anybody, but it's, it's a moment where we can course correct based on the words of Peter who is encouraging and guiding people who say, I follow Jesus. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is to live a life that is looking forward to this heavenly city. And you might say, well, then will you just forget about justice and forget about the poor and forget about uh, enjoying this life? Well, you don't have to. What you find actually is the people who talk most about heaven, who actually give their entire self to Jesus, they do the most serving and they are the most generous and they give up more of their free time to help and encourage and listen to others, not the other way around. It is the people who forget about heaven who tend to be the most self-centered and the most selfish, who build their own kingdom because they're not partnering with God to build God's kingdom. And so this is a letter from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now listen to this. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. And as a result, you have obeyed him and been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. A couple of interesting things to notice. The first thing I notice is the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, a communication of God's trinity, of his triunity, a reminder that at the very base of all of existence is three persons in God fueled by love. If God was only singular, there wouldn't be a love power at the base of the universe. You need three. You need community. And because God is love, because God is three in one, he doesn't actually need us. God doesn't need friends. <laughs> he doesn't come to us out of a place of desperation. He comes to us out of a place of perfect wholeness and says, even though I don't need you, I choose you. Even though I could have scrapped the whole project and still been whole, I chose to take on human flesh and die for you. The second thing I notice it is that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that makes us holy, and as a result, you obey him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We usually get that kind of backwards, don't we? We think we become holy because of our obedience. We think uh, that we can really only come to church if we have great faith. We think God is really only present in our lives if we're living up to a certain standard or believing all the right things. But here we have the action of God coming first, the power of the Holy Spirit preceding anything that we do. The Holy Spirit gives us the strength and guides us into obedience. 
Then Peter says, may God give you more and more grace and peace, which is a common and frequent greeting in Christian letters from the first century. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. It's the way Paul starts many of his letters. Grace and peace. Always grace first and then peace. Because you cannot experience true peace without first receiving and knowing the grace of God. Grace and peace. Verse 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again, born again. Where do you know that from? John 3.16, right? It's the same root word. The idea of being born again in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Later on, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, not of flesh, but of spirit. There's this new life that comes with following Jesus. And I've heard people who uh, are new to faith describing it just like that. When people are baptized, they say, it's like, I, I feel new. There's something fresh and alive in me that wasn't there before. And it, it goes on to describe one of the outflowings of this new life. According to the NLT in verse uh, 3, it says, Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance. Really, uh, a better way to translate the original Greek here is to say that you have a new birth into a living hope. New birth into a living hope. Now, what does it look like to have a living hope? I want to read a few passages from a guy named Viktor Frankl. Have you, any of you heard of Viktor Frankl? Some of you? Okay, actually, quite a few of you. That's impressive. You guys... I, I, like, just heard about this guy. So you've known about him longer than I have. But Viktor Frankl was a, a psychologist, psychiatrist, who ends up in the Nazi concentration camps. And so people would come to him for encouragement, for advice, like, how do I cope with this? But all the time, because he's a scientist, he's kind of, like, noticing how people behave and react to what's going on in the Nazi concentration camps. And he writes a book and, and talks a lot about hope and how people place their hope and how people live based on where they put their hope. And he says there's basically four responses to the concentration camp. He said the first grouping of people become very cynical. They harden. They become harsh. And they react, uh, you know, first maybe with force, but then often with uh, despair or depression. And he says, usually this happens quite suddenly, that switch from cynicism uh, or, or just callousness to the depression or the despair, the symptoms of which were familiar to everyone who had been in the camp for very long. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash out and or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. 
No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. So on the one end, you could become cynical. You could, like, give up. But the other end was just as deadly. You could retreat into a kind of optimism where you would deny reality. So here's a dramatic example from Viktor Frankl. He said, my senior block warden, a well-known composer and librettist, once told me he had a dream that the war was going to end on March 30. He was convinced that his dream was a revelation. And as the day grew nearer, it became clear that the reports of the war were not positive or favorable for it to end. On May 29, he suddenly began running a high temperature. On March 30, his day, he lost consciousness. On March 31, he was dead. The loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to all of the diseases of the camp. And so this, this person put hope in an alternate reality, uh, an optimism that actually wasn't dealing with the present moment as it truly was. So the first kind of person becomes hard. The second kind of person becomes disconnected from reality and overly optimistic. The interesting thing about this living hope is that it deals with reality but does not go into despair. So in verse 6, uh, again, maybe a little bit of an unfortunate translation here. It says, So be truly glad because there is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Uh, the reason that the translation is unfortunate is because it puts that joy as something in the future. Whereas in the Greek, it's actually present. And so you have present joy mingled with present trouble. Some translations will say that you experience grief for a little while. But at the same time, you experience joy because of, the, because of this. And the, this is that living hope. So for a follower of Jesus, you can and should experience joy and grief in the same moment and at the same time. And to retreat from suffering, to just put on the face of everything's fine, it's going to be fine, I'm fine, it's great, is actually a counterfeit of hope because it denies reality. So Christians, uh, people who follow Jesus, can face suffering head on, which actually is more than most people can do. I want you to imagine two trees in the middle of a hurricane. One of the trees falls down within the first five minutes. The other tree endures the storm hour after hour, bent over, its leaves blown. Which tree felt the brunt of the storm? The tree that fell over in the first five minutes? Or the tree that stood? Oh, it's the second tree. The second tree felt the storm for five minutes and then bowed out. The tree that endures feels the full brunt of the storm, but also is still standing for the sunshine when it comes out. New birth 
into a living hope. Present joy, present suffering. Neither cynicism nor blind optimism. Hope in reality. Back to Viktor Frankl. Thirdly, a lot of people held on by saying, if I survive, if I can just survive, I can get all my hopes back. Now, this is a bit of a paraphrase. It's chopped up a little, but he says, many held on through the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, family, professional achievements, fortune, and position in a society, those things that had been their hope would be restored. In other words, I can just get my old life back if I can live through this excruciating, like awful experience. But after liberation, after V-Day, so many found that when their dreams had finally come, it was much different than, the, than what they had longed for. Many people went into deep depression for the rest of their lives after their liberation, and some even committed suicide. And so the third way that you can kind of miss, engage with suffering in a way that's detrimental is you can put your hope into the things of this life you can forget that we are pilgrims. You can say, if I can just get through this hard stretch, then I can buy the house I really want. Then I can make time for my friends. <laughs> and even if that's true, you'll find that the, the hope in something temporal that ultimately will not satisfy or last because all these things are finite and perishable uh, does not fill you up, does not actually give you that thing to live for that is meaningful in the eternal sense. But then Viktor Frankl, and I don't know that he was like reflecting on this as a Christian. <laughs> He's reflecting on it uh, I mean, I think he's Jewish, but he's reflecting on it as a psychologist. So here, here, here his words kind of from his professional uh, perspective. Then there was a fourth group, but it was small. He said, only a few of the prisoners kept their full inner liberty and obtained an inner strength that raised them above their outward fate. Only a few people were able to stay kind, stay to some degree buoyant, not happy, uh, but because they're in like a concentration camp, but only a few were able to uh, say, oh, I lost my place. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, few were able to say, stay kind and keep what they called their inner liberty. Why? He said something like life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. So what is your foundation? And he said, what I would tell people as a person of faith, but also as a psychologist, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. Your, your life will see suffering. <laughs> the suffering you encounter will not be as concentrated as what Viktor Frankl experienced in a concentration camp. But if you live long enough, you will lose your job. You will lose your health. Your friends will die. 
you will lose everything until you lose your life. The concentration camp makes all those things happen very quickly. But over the course of your life, if you live long enough, you will see a great deal of suffering. And you will find that you need a hope that is living, that is rooted in something that will never die. And that's why when Peter says this living hope comes to you through the resurrection of Jesus, he is saying something deeply and amazingly profound. Real hope is in resurrection and in Jesus' resurrection in particular because if Jesus was raised, if Jesus was not raised, our hope is meaningless. But if Jesus was raised, then there is a power greater than death and sin and suffering. And so our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus has passed through death and has found victory Everything else you might put your hope in will die. And Peter says this as well. He says that we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. There is a life after death. And that life for you includes an inheritance if you receive the gracious gift of God's love. You know, I was, uh, I, I, we took a real short trip down to the Outer Banks with some friends. And I, we're, we're driving Route 1. And I saw something that caught my attention. There was a, uh, a Goodwill, like a, a shop where you could buy used things. And right beside it was an antique store, a shop where you can buy used things. And I saw somebody pull out of the Goodwill and right back into the antique shop. And I thought, huh, I wonder what the difference is. Maybe a few decades, maybe a few dollars between what you could find in Goodwill and the antique store. I wonder if you could find the same thing in both places. But the price would be a little different. You know where the next stop is for all that stuff, right? It might spend a little while in Goodwill, and then it might spend a little while in the antique store, but you know where it ends up eventually? Underground. In the junkyard. Or maybe in a museum. That's almost nothing ends up in the museum. But Peter says, <clears throat> we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And so your hope is not just living, it is lasting. It is eternal. It is what we need to survive and thrive through suffering and pain. But it is guaranteed, not because, again, of a good life we live, but because of the good life that Jesus lived. And it is his death where he takes on our sin 
that opens up the door for his life to flow back into us. And so we live as pilgrims. And so we have a living hope. And so we look forward to an inheritance that can never decay because of resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, come and meet us. Give us a glimpse of the power of your resurrection and what it might mean for our lives. As we sing, we ask that like as, in our worship, we would find that our hearts begin to reorient back to you in a sense that we would repent, that the trajectory of our hope, but also of our life and of our thoughts would turn back to you. And as we do that, we pray that we would not only sing, but that you would speak, that we would sense you, that you would give us words, that you would give us peace, that you would fill us with joy. And so I invite you to stand. And I invite you to sing. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.